This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm Bob Asman, and I'm your host for today's session. I'm really pleased to have a CX visionary with me today to talk about his career, uh, CX, and a whole bunch of other subjects uh, that we'll see where our conversation takes us. Today, Brad Smith is joining us. Brad, welcome to the All Things Considered podcast, and please introduce yourself uh, to our guests and our listeners. Sure thing, Bob. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk today. Um, Hi, everybody. I'm Brad Smith. I'm the uh, president and founder of Vector Business Navigation, which is a small consultancy that helps uh, big companies figure out how to become much better at getting to that customer-centric point of view. Um, If you will, uh, one of my my dear colleagues uh, who I worked with throughout the years, Jim Pendergast, he forces me to copyright this saying, but you're not doing it right, I don't believe, unless customer experience, CX, is your company's operating system. So is CX your OS? That's the challenge I like to help my clients solve. Uh, that's excellent. I hadn't heard that before, Brad, so I, I love that saying, and I, I'm sure we can uh, go into a little more detail about that too. Um, Brad, our listeners love to learn about our guests and their career paths. How did you get to where you are today? What experiences did you have? What encounters did you have along the way? Tell us a little bit about that background and that journey that you had. Yeah, for sure. Um, it seems uh, <laughs> it seems non-related, but surprisingly, the more I do this work, the more I feel like it was the best foundation ever. Um, I grew up in uh, Merritt Island, Florida, uh, on the east coast of Florida near Cocoa Beach, which is where Kennedy Space Center is. So I grew up watching, uh, you know, Apollo missions fly into the sky and shuttle missions later on. And uh, after working at a small general aviation airport, I got a job at Kennedy Space Center. Um, I worked there eight and a half years, uh, first in the engineering support area. So from the minute the shuttle lands until it takes off again, it goes through 16 pre-stage tests to verify all the systems are ready for flight. And I'd run all the engineering analytical reports for that. Did that while I was uh, finishing out my bachelor's degree, uh, working second shift. Then I did software quality for a year. I was a ground launch sequencer programmer for a year and a half. And that's the math model that runs the shuttle countdown from T minus 40 minutes through liftoff, uh, managing um, 72,000 functional designators that are sensing across the entire launch complex and vehicle, are we safe to launch? Is it okay to go from T minus 14 to T minus 13 to T minus 12? Um, Following that, a friend of mine got a job at Oracle who built a technical support center in Orlando. I worked at Oracle for five and a half years, rose through the ranks from a frontline support person to ultimately running the entire Y2K program for Oracle reporting to the board of directors and getting it ready for that adventure. 
went from there to a, a startup called OpenWave, which basically invented the mobile internet. And all of our customers were the major telcos around the globe. Uh, there I did support, support operations, professional services, um, and ultimately uh, left OpenWave as the global vice president of technical product support. Went from there to a VP of support job for VeriSign. Um, from there, I went to a sales and operations role at a, at a super stall, small startup for about seven months. And then I found myself at Symantec. Symantec had hired me to be the customer service experience architect to re-engineer what their B2B and B2C support experiences were like. And um, it's there I met Asling Hassel, who was the chief customer officer at the time. I got involved in a business architecture project where everybody from marketing to product to sales to onboarding to engineering to customer support was at the table. And we kind of laid out this customer lifecycle framework. And that's where I realized customer experiences for me. I want to declare this as my major. Um, if you grew up in a support organization, the curse of that is you always have to keep everyone else's promises, whether they were good or bad. And my mantra has always been, what if we could make better promises, right? So being able to sit at the table where marketing is, where sales is, where product is, it was like just otherworldly to me and forever changed my worldview. From Symantec, I got recruited to Yahoo, became the vice president of customer support, uh, worked there almost three years, little, little more than three years. And then <clears throat> I left uh, Yahoo in uh, 2012 and became the executive vice president of customer support for Sage Software, uh, which is small business accounting software, and tasked to run a three-year customer-centric transformation. Uh, I reported directly into the CEO as basically the chief customer officer. I had reporting into me all the customer support, service, training, and learning services, but then I also had this massive customer-centric transformation agenda in front of me and in that time, I was acting chief marketing officer for 10 months. Uh, we were able to knock out the three-year transformation in just a little over two years. And because Sage is an international corporation owned by a UK parent, um, they looked at what we did in North America. And after a series of vetting, uh, decided to do it for the globe. So I became the global executive vice president of customer experience. And now my mission was do what we did in North America for Brazil, Germany, Ireland, England, France, Italy, et cetera. Um, I found myself in the spring of 2015 uh, in London every other week. And when I wasn't in London, I was on a 4 a.m. telepresence meeting because I live here in Irvine, <laughs> California. And it was clear if I was going to stay at Sage, I needed to probably uh, relocate yet again. Um, and my daughter at the time, Audrey, uh, you know, seven years old, five zip codes. And so I decided to um, take a sabbatical, <clears throat> left Sage, we parted as great friends. And uh, about two months into my sabbatical, um, I had multiple professional colleagues reaching out to me asking me, um, hey, that thing you did at, at Semantic, we'd really like you to do it here. Or that thing you did at Yahoo, we'd really like to do it here. And uh, you know, I started doing some freelancing work. I established Vector Business Navigation in, in September, 2015. And uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. What a rich a journey you've had. That, that's why I always enjoy hearing my guests tell the journey because it's never, uh, you know, from point A to point B in a straight line. It's always a, a variety of experiences across a variety of industries. And, and, and you certainly have had that, that uh, same situation. So let me ask you this, as you look back at this, 
what are some of the uh, you know key learnings that you've had and maybe some of the uh, things that you know you could help others avoid the pitfalls so maybe a combination of the learnings and here's what you do to avoid the pitfalls yeah for sure <clears throat> one of the things that I can appreciate <clears throat> now is that even though for the most part I grew up in high technology companies through my work at um, the Consortium for Service Innovation and through my work uh, through the CXPA board um, and other professional associations that I've uh, had the pleasure to be a part of, the principles of customer experience, I believe, are truly universal. <clears throat> they do not care if you are a multinational conglomerate or a you know two-store franchise small business, um, B2B, B2C, for-profit, not-for-profit, uh, manufacturing, health and technology services, financial services, uh, insurance, um, you know, uh, service as your product, product as your product, retail, it does not matter. The principles that make a company operate perfectly in a CX envelope of performance, those principles are, are universal. Um, and so that's very exciting. I've had over 30 clients since founding Vector and uh, the variety of clients I've had has just been astonishing, but yet the ability to understand what's working, what's not, understand how well you're keeping those customer promises or not, understanding what the customer lifecycle frameworks are and where the pain points are and where the friction points are and who owns or operates those things or doesn't, where the blind spots are, what you're measuring, are you measuring for customer success or business success and where's the gap there? And then finally, you know, there's never ever, I don't believe, been a customer happier than the employee who served them. So how focused are you on the employee experience and how capable are you making them to be successful? You know, so my mom, um, who was in her 80s when I formed my company, she kind of asked me, what's this whole customer experience thing about? What's your business going to do? And I said, you know, I, I suspect I'm here to help cure institutional blindness. You know, these, these companies are the way they are for very good reasons. They grew up through a series of compromises and trade-offs and now they're here and they're just blind to how they're treating their customers every day. They're blind to the pains and stresses that their employees carry every day. And if they could see those things, they would act in accordance against them. And if they could understand, especially how these blind spots are impacting margin and profit and growth, um, they would dramatically address those things. So um, those, those are some of the big pearls that I've discovered, I think. Mm -hmm. So Brad, building off the, your concept of the blind spots, why is that, do you think, that companies don't see those, those problem areas, the way they're delivering the experience or products? And what do you think is at the core of that? Uh, clearly there's a problem, right? And you yep. help companies get over that, but, but why do you think that exists in organizations? I believe that there's a field of view or a field of vision, if you will, that every key role in the company operates under, okay? So if you're on the quality team, you're probably looking at the world through a microscope. And if you're on the marketing team, you're probably looking at the world through a telescope. And if you're on the sales team, you're marching blindly as a 
beautiful machine across a 13 week quarter to hit that number. And so these timeframes, these focuses, if you will, they're organizationally <clears throat> siloed designed to achieve optimal performance of the entire organization. But these points of view, these fields of view, this, you know, I'm looking at a week three of a 13 week quarter, or I'm looking at what's my defect rate for 10,000 sales and, you know, only two, two returns, or I'm looking at what's the macro market trends that we have to worry about in spring of 2022, because I'm trying to lay out what my product market, you know, these different fields of view do not appreciate what your customer's point of view is day to day, week to week. Almost every company I know is obsessed with new customer acquisition and spends huge amounts of money all in to acquire new customers. Very little is spent on the actual greeting and welcoming and onboarding of those customers and that first set of experiences that they have as a new customer to your products, a new customer to your services, a new customer to your support or training or learning assets. And so what is that first year dropout rate? What's the 10 year look like? How many of your customers are still loyal to you at you know, year one, year two, year three, year four? And what's remarkable for me you know, through taking copious notes across the 30 clients and the different companies I've worked for, and almost every company, I don't care what kind of size or shape or industry it's focused on, there's this sweet spot of around year three or four, those customers, that cohort, seem to be the most loyal, seem to be generating the highest net promoter scores or you know, customer loyalty scores, um, seem to be the most profitable. And then there's a drop off somewhere around year five, six, seven, or 10. Um, but in that first year, that first six months, that first year and a half, those customer scores are almost always problematic and tough. And you know, I call it, you, know, you gotta teach your customers how to ride the fiery unicycle of death. And once they've mastered that, <laughs> they can be really, really successful, right? But how hard is it? How hard do we make it to help our customers realize the fullest value of our products and services? And whose job is it to make sure that that happens? And that's where I think a lot of these blind spots come from. That's just a, uh, an excellent uh, summary of those blind spots, Brad. I just, I, I love the visuals and, I, and the imagery, and yet uh, it's just so true. And you, in the course of that discussion, you also mentioned the employee experience. Are there similar blind spots there too that you found when you're working with companies? 100%. Um, the... You know, I grew up in customer support and service, and so I, I carry a, a special set of scars that, you know, impact my worldview. Mm -hmm. But in almost any company, the contact center, the customer care, customer service center, it is probably one of the highest metric parts of the entire organization. I can see how many calls come in. I can see what the average handle time is. I can see what the hold times are. I can see what the CSAT scores are. I can see how effective the utility of the workforce is. What's their non-hold time? What's their hold time? How many, what's their case closure rates? What's their case documentation rates? What's their, you know? And so in that highly metric space, there's almost always cost pressure to improve productivity year over year and reduce operating expense year over year. 
And that's driven a whole host of sins to, you know, outsourcing your entire teams to third-party labor markets that are much, much cheaper to now the new cool trend, of course, is to turn everything into AI chat bots who will do all the work for you. And we can avoid those, you know, those, those dangerous, expensive humans from talking to people. But in that space, what we don't allow is for a fully formed human to help another fully formed human customer. We don't give space to build a relationship to, 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 to understand that, the, that in the moment of the interaction, that's where your brand is most heard, most felt, most remembered. And if I could build almost like, you know, setting a stage for, you know, a, a small town production of, <laughs> you know, pick your favorite musical. If I could set a stage and if I could put you know, that service agent onto the stage, well-trained, well-choreographed, well-dressed, well-ready to handle that interaction and then introduce the customer to that interaction. And if I can engage the entire audience in, we stand for these things, you know, we will always represent and honor these things. And I will allow that agent to do what is right based upon that, you know, that's a whole different way to manage employees. And if you can lean into, you know, the teachings of Daniel Pink and Drive, and if I could give you a sense of mastery, autonomy, and purpose, and if I can infuse that in my culture, and if I can have my leaders demonstrate that, then when they get to speak to customers, when they get to greet new employees, when they get to coach and train and up-level other employees, those things will become profound. And so, you know, your brand promises that you want to deliver out into the marketplace they have to be wholly represented back at the ranch, you know, um, safe, fun, and easy was the three big brand promises we had at Yahoo. Mm. It's safe to be a Yahoo customer. It's easy to be a Yahoo customer and ought to be fun. Well, guess what? I have to manage the workforce exactly the same way. Is this a safe place for them to get their job done? Is it easy for them to get their job done? And do they have fun doing their job? And if I haven't created that environment, how can I possibly have that translated over to our customers? Powerful, powerful words, Brad. And listeners, you're listening to Brad Smith joining us today, a CX visionary in the field and uh, sharing his views on on customer experience and in the employee experience. So Brad, where are we at right now? You know, if you, if you agree that we're starting to emerge from the pandemic, where is CX right now with organizations? We saw a lot of CX professionals furloughed early in the pandemic. Where do you think we're at? Where, 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 are, we go, where are we at and where are we going with this profession and with CX overall? Well, I think we're in an amazing world of possibility. And, and what I mean by that is, for so many years, corporations have acted in a particular way because they've uh, allowed themselves to be constrained. Those constraints could be artificial, they could be a result of a balance sheet or a financial exercise. But when I talk about these constraints, let's just talk about telecommuting. Hey, I can't possibly allow people to work from home, they'll never be productive. I can't possibly allow people to work from home because I don't trust them. I think they're going to be slacking off and not doing the job well. Um, I need to have a grade A office. I need to make sure that office has a great kitchen and free coffee 
in soft drinks, we need to make sure we have a, a play area, you know, a, a, de a decompression area so we could have some playful events. I need to make sure that I choreograph uh, events for people to, to engage each other, you know, some open space collaboration thinking. Like these were all of the norms uh, going into COVID. Coming out of COVID, just the unbounded, untapped productivity, the unbounded and untapped creativity of how workers have found new and interesting ways to engage each other, new and interesting ways to really learn more about each other's lives, to see each other at a, at a more human level, even knowing each other's pets' names and being concerned about family members who, who might've fallen ill and uh, hopefully got better, right? So I think there's a much deeper emotional bonds across the workforce today. I think there's a greater sense of trust and autonomy that exists today. And with those constraints loosened, now what could we do together? And I think that after being uh, locked down, you know, through repeated cycles and having to do homeschooling, if you're a parent, I think <clears throat> consumers and customers are hungry for authentic human contact as well. And so the, the kind of traditional role of, I stand behind a service kiosk at the automobile dealership. I'm gonna tell you whether or not you can get your car appointment done on time or not. And you know that kind of the, the power dynamic, I think all those things have kind of been loosened up. And I think, you know, uh, you know it was said to me uh, in the fall of last year, um, you know, we are in the age of customer experience going into 2018, 2019, 2020. Uh, now I think we're in the age of empathy and the empathy of experience. And if we can't demonstrate honest empathy uh, to each other as associates and employees, to our customers, if we can't demonstrate our commitment to higher order purposes as a good brand, I think you're going you're gonna to forfeit the right to be in business. So I think CX is wildly expanding and I think it's, it's locked in hard to EX and I think it's got to be purpose-based, human-based. Mm -hmm. Very true words, Brad. And I think early on in the pandemic, we saw a lot of empathy between customers and organizations as everybody tried to adjust to it. And, and you pointing out how important empathy is is certainly applicable as we emerge from the pandemic um, and moving forward. Brad, uh, this has been a great conversation. And I also want to just take a few minutes to learn a little bit about uh, your leadership of the Consortium for Service Innovation. Can you share with our listening audience what uh, that organization is all about? Sure. Um, the um, Consortium for Service Innovation um, is, is a, uh, think of it as a, a kind of a think tank uh, for customer service and support organizations. That's how it grew up. Um, and it's been around since uh, before the turn of the century. I love saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's good. Everybody says, wow, it's really old. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculously old, yeah. Um, but it's uh, if you go www.serviceinnovation.com, um, it's a not-for-profit alliance of service and support organizations really focused around the innovation that's required for customer engagement, productivity, and success. So tied to that is how can we be a more responsive workforce to help customers achieve what they need to get to help them realize the fullest potential value of their products and services. So 
what are different customer service models, different engagement models, different techniques? How can we work better together, faster together? What are some of the innovative trends and metrics and measurements we need to do to, to uh, do these things better? And there's, there's a very much a hungry focus on what's out there three to five years out, what's on the event horizon? And how can we better understand these things? How can we model these things? How can we innovate on these things? And then challenge the member companies to take a theoretical model and put it, put it to market, test it out, kick the tires on it, and then report back what they've learned. And over time, you know, over the 20 plus years that the consortium's been around, um, two to three different member companies will inspire each other. And suddenly what we've got is a best practice. And it almost, almost always emerges after the third or fourth try, right? Um, and then publishing that best practice and really nailing what is, what is the methodologies, the approaches, the measurements, the metrics, the trainings, the roles, responsibilities, technology, whatever. And then updating that, that body of best practices, uh, you know, year over year, and then innovating into new and interesting areas. So um, it's, it's really a, it, it's a great place. And one of the, one of their hallmarks is um, giving the members a place to a space to think, you know, shutting down the day-to-day -day and forcing yourself out of that maniacal focus on, you know, the last 25 cases and phone calls you answered in the contact center or, you know, week seven performance on the 13-week march through the quarter or what's happening out in Q2. But no, think, think five years out. Think of the meta trends that are happening. Think of the things that we know to always be true and how can we better understand, utilize, and harness those things to get the things done that we want to do into the future? And how can we learn and inspire from each other? So uh, I, I was introduced to the consortium in 2004, uh, became part of its uh, board leadership system um, in 2008, 2009. I'm currently the president of the board of directors of this organization. Um, it's a smaller organization as organizations go, but. Um, you know, I kind of call it my dojo, right? I go there to get inspired, to get invigorated, to think thoughtfully about the future and uh, how ready are we to accommodate it? Excellent, thanks Thanks for that overview. And Brad, I, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I always like to leave a few minutes at the end uh, before we wrap up for my guests to share advice to listeners. Most of our listeners are CX professionals. Uh, advice, thoughts, kind of final comments that we may not have covered or you want to convey to our listeners. So this is Brad's time, so to speak, <laughs> before we before we close out, even though it's been a fantastic sure. uh, time together. Yeah. I, I would I would say the following. Um, you know, throughout my career in uh, in all the jobs I've held and all the clients I've helped out and you know, all the organizations I've gotten to know through both the consortium and, and CXPA. A um, couple things I believe to be true. Um, the first one is whoever is closest to the customer is usually the best able to decide what is the right thing to do. And so if you can put more decision-making authority into the hands of those closest to the customers, to do the right thing by the design of what your brand is, then nothing but success is going to come your way. And what's funny is, is that in a lot of organizations, even though a lot of companies and organizations talk about their customers, uh, very few people actually want to talk to their customers. 
and engage with their customers and make real human-to-human -human promises and obligations and keep those promises to their customers. So I think if you are interested about customer experience, if you really believe that there's something to it, if you believe that's what you want to be when you grow up, my two words of advice would first off is get as close to the customer as you can, learn everything you can about the customer and share that understanding with everyone that you touch and know. I'd also ask you to challenge your company to be accountable to the promises that it makes. I found oftentimes that a company's actions betray its intentions. So if you say that um, we care about your financial success and we care about you growing your money and we, you know, we're a safe business and then you know, Wells Fargo bonuses every <laughs> branch manager to open up multiple accounts unknowingly to their customers to get their uh, stock evaluations higher. So you're purposely and knowingly eroding the trust, which is the marquee of your brand that's a problem. And part of your job is to tell your company to stop doing that or to find a company that's worthy of your service. Don't allow yourself to be beaten down that way. You know, um, the other thing I would mention is one of the greatest challenges and opportunities about customer experiences is that it only works if everybody's doing it. It's no one person's job. It's actually literally everyone's job. So if you're a great customer experience leader inside your company, part of your job is to get everybody singing from the same sheet of music, right? And there's no better way to help that happen than to be able to speak empathetically to every person who lives in all those different silos. So there's no better way to talk to a sales team than being a former salesperson. There's no better way to talk to a marketing team than being a former marketer or being a former customer care person, or being a former product manager, right? So I would invite you to think about your CX career over an arc of 15 to 20 years and think about almost getting merit badges, right? Have you done sales? Have you done marketing? Have you done support? Have you done product management and product design? Um, even the back office functions of you know, HR, uh, finance, uh, logistics, IT, all those things are critical to any company's performance. And almost always those back office functions are at the root cause of a lot of the customer experience pain points you're gonna find later in life. So I would take your enthusiastic vision of what customer experience is and your obsession about trying to understand everything there is to know about a customer. And then I'd also ask you to opportunistically jump in to career opportunities that allow you to learn firsthand what is sales, what is marketing, what is product management, what is customer care. And I think if you do those two things consciously and you think about your, your job, not as a job, but as a career and a career that might not be at the same company the rest of your life, then I think you're well suited for success in customer experience. Great advice from a true CX professional, Brad. Thanks so much. If our listeners want to continue the conversation or learn more about uh, your many activities in the CX field, uh, how's the best way to connect with you? Um, LinkedIn is always a great place. Bradford Smith, you can find me there. Um, I'm also listed on the CXPA website and the Consortium for Service Innovation website. And you can go to my company's website, www.vectorbn.com, Vector Bravo November. So V-E-C-T-O-R-B-N.com. 
Excellent. Listeners, you've been listening to another podcast from All Things Considered CX with our guest, Brad Smith. Uh, Please share this podcast with your networks and stay tuned for more podcasts on CX in the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.